Good to be back with you, though, admittedly, I'm getting a little nervous. Every time I come here, more people have casts on. <laughs> I really not like to break anything, so. All right, if you uh, have your Bible out, uh, flip to Romans 8. I have chosen a massive passage. Do not worry. Uh, the sermon will not run for several hours. Um, when I lived in Columbia, South Carolina, there was the Reverend Sinclair Ferguson was preaching at First Presbyterian. Uh, Sinclair Ferguson, he's written a lot of books. His name is pretty big in some circles. And, um, you know, this was the South, and we had, we would have two services. So you always, I mean, a, a morning service and evening services. And they would usually do Old Testament in the morning, New Testament at night. And uh, when Sinclair Ferguson said he was going to preach through Romans Sunday nights, it was like a huge deal. The, the services were packed out. Uh, there was a rumor that another church in town had canceled their Sunday night services and said, just go see Sinclair Ferguson talk about Romans. Anyway, I looked it up, and the passage I have chosen here, he took six sermons to preach through it. Uh, I'm going to do it in one. So uh, we're not going to get everything, uh, obviously. I'm going to leave a lot on the table. But the reason that I have chosen it is because I believe when I think of Advent, and this is the first week of Advent, I think of Romans 8. Uh, I think that it is the passage that does the most justice to the idea of Advent. Um, for some of you who maybe haven't experienced Advent before or thought about it before, it is, you know, it's uncommon. I don't think uh, a lot of churches do it. Um, we're very familiar with Christmas, but Advent's something a little different. Uh, author Caroline Cobb wrote, Advent is the period of time dedicated to waiting and watching for the Lord. It's about the tension of anticipation. It's this four-week period where we kind of sit and, and we wait for Jesus uh, to come, and we kind of put ourselves in the mode of what would it have been like to be God's chosen people waiting for the Messiah to show up, and every week, you know, you light a candle. Uh, honestly, I didn't, growing up, I didn't love Christmas. I know that seems counterintuitive, but to me, there was a lot of sweater wearing. I hate sweaters. Um, it seemed like a lot of formal stuff. I just wasn't a big fan of Christmas in general. But uh, when I married my wife, her family goes all in on Advent. And every night they have Christmas cards and they pray for the people. They open the Christmas cards at night and pray for those people. They sing hymns together. They light the candle. And it was really compelling to me and awesome to watch. And we've done it with our boys. And they, too, as you light each candle, you can, you can see they're beginning to internalize what's going on. Um, and I think last year was the first time we were at a church service and they lit the last candle and my boys gasped and it was like, <gasps> you know, uh, it sank in for them what was, what was going on. Um, so, no passage speaks better to, I'm really glad the candles were here, by the way, because I was going to say that and it was going to feel like a little reprimand to uh, Grace if you guys didn't do that. <laughs> um, but I want to give us a big picture view, kind of set the table for Advent by looking at Romans 8. I'm not going to answer every big question in this passage, obviously, but I just want to look at the core things of the already but not yet kingdom, which we'll get into. So let me read it. It's long. We can do it. We're going to read it together, and then we'll pray together and get into it. Here we go. Romans 8, 12. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit 
that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies, for in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he sees, but if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words, and he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he may be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Definitely finish some passages and feel like we can just go home. There's powerful stuff here. Your word speaks clearly and true. May we hear from you this morning. And in Jesus' name, amen. So I'm not going to lie. I'm a bit of a self-help junkie. I love the fact that there's always some way to do what I'm doing better than the way I am currently doing it. Uh, I feel like in a lot of ways our culture doesn't reward um, agency or competency. Uh, I don't know if you experience this, but I feel like everything is specialized to such a degree that you can't really do much. You can't like fix your own stuff. I drove a car in the 90s that was essentially like a go-kart. Uh, when the wind was blowing on the interstate, it would go back and forth. But if that thing broke, you could actually open it and maybe fix it, you know? Uh, I remember I ran it into a ditch once, and I called a friend. He just came over, and we picked it up out of the ditch together, uh, you know? And as much as, you know, um, as much as that car was cheap and probably dangerous, I appreciated that you could get into it and actually work on it and mess around with it and maybe fix it. The van I have now, uh, there's so much electrical stuff going on there that um, even just changing the light seems like it requires a degree to do it. Uh, so it, it feels like a lot of ways our, our culture is built towards not like agency, but it feels a little bit like it wants to infantilize us. Uh, author Robert Twigger argued that. He said that our culture feels like it wants to infantilize us. My grandfather on my wife's side um, built his own house in his 20s. Still stands. It's a great house. I don't think I've ever built anything, you know. Uh, I was really proud of myself when I took apart the dryer and put it back together, you know. Um, and when uh, I have a relative, when he was 23 or 24, he died on a beach on Iwo Jima during World War II. Uh, meanwhile, in the news this past week, young associates at Penguin Random House made the news because they were crying at a town hall over a controversial book being published. 
just feels like something has, something's been lost here, you know. We're increasingly, it seems, unable to take care of ourselves, to become competent, to take significant ac action, to suffer and persevere. And I think that's why self-help is such a booming industry. Uh, in 2018, according to market research, the self-improvement market was worth $9.9 .9 billion, which is amazing. Uh, personal coaching services made a billion dollars in the United States. A lot of these are really good. I'm not slamming them. It's just an interesting trend. Motivational speakers made a billion in the United States, and they say preaching is dead. Uh, Self-help audiobooks, 769, all of this, and it's only growing, and I think COVID has only increased its growth. So what's going on there? Well, I, I think that people know deep down that there is some growth that's supposed to happen, that we're supposed to move towards something. But all the authorities in our culture do not want to answer that question of like, where, where, what am I supposed to do? What is the good life? What does it look like? I remember a teacher in high school telling me, I, I want to give you the tools so that if you find the right thing to pursue, you'll be able to pursue it. And I remember thinking, like, you're, you're in your 50s and you still haven't found it? Like, this is the best you have to offer to me? Is that you're going to equip me in case I happen to be the one to find the meaning of life? That's what this is about? Uh, not very compelling. A lot of schools, I've noticed, have, um, if you ask what their, what their character education program looks like, they usually, I mean, there's a lot of well-intentioned stuff going on. I don't want to be down on that. But a lot of it is stuff like this. There's a, a school I, I saw that they use their virtues through the acronym PRIDE, which is positive action, respect yourself and others, intelligent decisions, develop positive relationships, and engage in classroom activities. That last one is real. And some of the implications of the virtues that they say your kid will learn how to walk on the right in the hallway and use indoor voice inside and listen to all announcements and have suitable applause. Powerful stuff. Not only is this acronym named after literally the core of all vices, pride, right? But it's also clearly just made to protect the school from lawsuits and keep people orderly. It's not meant to en encourage the children to grow into self-sacrificial -sac self heroes who are supposed to serve other people. And I think I see the impact of that, where I watch students that, to me, I don't think they are moving towards a positive, beautiful image of virtue, but they just don't want to be seen as sexist or prejudiced. And so as we leave the good life question unanswered, there are lots of people who want to answer it that aren't good. Advertisers love to answer the good life question. Oh, you want to know what the good life is? It's buying this. That's the good life, right? Uh, media, radical political groups. We've watched like groups kind of recruit. I've, I've seen it happen to some students get swept up in these things. Why is it so compelling? Because they're answering, the, they're trying to answer the question. They're not right, I don't think. I, they aren't right, period. Uh, <laughs> let me be clear on that one. They're not right. But I understand why a student might be attracted to those things because when they go to all these places and say the big questions, why do I suffer? How can I change? What's my life for? What am I supposed to grow up and be? Why do hard work at all? Why not just disappear into my parents' basement? There's actually an answer. Well, I actually think Advent answers these questions, believe it or not. I think Advent answers the questions that my students uh, and a lot of us are looking for. 
uh, and it teaches us, I think, how to live in tension. And the tension of the Christian life is the tension of total victory and lots of struggle. And we experience both. And you can see churches that maybe emphasize one over the other, and it's all victory, all victory, and they have no category for struggle, or it's all struggle, it's all struggle, and they have no category for victory. The scripture paints this picture of the now but not yet, the already but not yet. And it's this lovely phrase, and what it means is Jesus has already won the battle, and so so much is true of us right now that's very good. But it's not yet fully realized, and that's where the struggle comes in. So today I want to look at that already but not yet in this passage. And that's all, that's all going to be my filter for this, is I just want to look at what does this passage tell us about what's true now, and what does this passage tell us about what is not yet true? That's all we're going to look at. So let's start with uh, what is true of us now. Let's look at this uh, opening, 12 through 17. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you do not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but the spirit of adoption as sons. Okay, so the first thing that's stated right away, and this is a true thing that should be repeated a lot, and we should, we should have this kind of saturated in us, is if you are in Christ, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Period. If you are in Christ, the Spirit of God dwells in you. That's a promise of the Scriptures. We probably don't say that enough or think about that. The Spirit of God dwells in you. That seems like a pretty big deal. What, what does that mean? What does that do for us? Well, Paul immediately gets about answering it. In 13, he says the thing we all know. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. And by this he means if you live according to your selfish desires... If you pursue your own thing, if you're just, I'm going to be true to myself and do this and that, it leads to death. This seems self-evidently true. We watch people who are consumed by their own desires. We know that if we spent a week just doing the, our impulses, just doing what we wanted, things would be destroyed at the end of that week. Yes? Um, most people's base desires are not good. And in the West, they usually seem to amount to kind of like cast off your obligations so you can go do what you want and spend what you want and all that. So we know that's true. But here's the interesting thing that's next. He says, but if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. By saying that, the implication is it's actually possible to do this. That it is actually possible to put to death the deeds of the body. Uh, one of the things that happens, I think, as I'm, I'm sure many parents in the room, or if, you've, if you teach young children, you know you're constantly confronted by your own failures all the time. Uh, you're constantly put in situations where you're frustrated and all of this, and it feels like, maybe you can feel a little hopeless, like, man, I, I can never, I seem to lose my patience with him so quickly, my, my son, why do I do that, you know? Uh, so I constantly see, and the, what the scriptures say to me is actually the spirit, through the spirit, it is possible to put that to death. I, I can wage war against that. I can accomplish it. It's not just enduring these things. The spirit longs to move us towards Christ. That's the whole point of the spirit. So when you wake up one day and you're like, man, I really want to draw closer to God, the spirit's like, yes, I'm on board with that. I've been on board with that since day one. Let's go. You know, that is the spirit's entire drive is to put to death 
those deeds of the body and move us towards God. Try something interesting this week, uh, and then maybe report back to me when someone else breaks something and I show up again. Um, <laughs> try, try just praying for this week that you have, think of someone that you would like an opportunity to talk to about Christ, and just try praying this week for it, like every day, and just see if it happens. Frequently, I find that that happens, and it's like, I, I'll think like, man, it's, it's really hard. I can never have a conversation with that person, and I start praying for it, and it's like right away. Like, yep, here it is. Spirit's been waiting on you for, to do that. The Spirit's really excited about doing this, you know. Um, just try it. Let's see what happens. So the Spirit longs to do this. This is the whole of the Christian life is to movement towards God. And I think some people shy away from this idea that the point is of the Spirit is putting to death the deeds of the body. Some of them shy away from it because just want kind of the forgiveness of Christ and kind of therapy and then move on. I understand that. But some people are afraid, I think, because they don't actually believe they can change. And they don't actually believe that the Spirit is powerful enough to change. And so they don't want to try. They hear Jesus when he says, you're forgiven, but shy away from go and sin no more. And it's amazing how much those two things are right together, aren't they? Jesus is always like, you're forgiven, go and sin no more. They're like, they're connected at the hip. Some people think that when Jesus said things like, uh, if you lust with your eyes, if you, yeah, lust with your eyes, you've committed adultery with your heart, or if you're angry with your neighbor, you've committed murder in your heart, and they say, oh, Jesus is just saying those things to, to point us towards him to show how sinful we are. He doesn't actually want us to change. I don't think that's true. I think he does want us to see that we're sinful and need to depend on God, but I also think Jesus actually wants us to pursue him, to be righteous. So the spirits in you, it can actually put to death the sinful habits in your life. But we're often hopeless and afraid, and Paul has an answer for that too. He says, like, I recognize that when I say the spirit of God is the way we put to death the deeds of the body, that you're like, I don't know, I feel kind of hopeless about this, and that's going to be hard. He says, you didn't receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. You received the spirit of adoption as sons. He's saying, like, hey, you didn't. You didn't leave all this stuff behind to come to Christ just to keep operating like you're in the world. You're in the kingdom of God now. You don't have a spirit of fear. You have a spirit of bravery. You have the spirit of adoption as sons. You can move forward with confidence. That's what's happened. You could cry, Abba, Father. And Paul is saying the alternative to not moving into this is not some kind of neutral space. It's like death. It's returning to old things, those things you ran away from. If you're not relying on God, if you're not fighting, then you're relying on something else. Don't fear. Spirit is not a spirit of fear. Uh, I was uh, thinking of the movie. Um, I don't know if you guys had this experience, but back in the day, maybe this doesn't happen anymore because of streaming services, but back in the day, uh, I saw a lot of movies on cable where they would censor them and make them PG cuts, you know? And then I'd be like, that movie was great and rent it and show it to my parents, and it would be the R-rated version, and uh, things would not go well for me, you know? I promise it wasn't there the first time I saw it. Um, so I hesitate to quote an R-rated movie from the pulpit, but pretend it's the cable version. That's probably where I saw it. Uh, in Shawshank Redemption is this story of these two, these two prisoners, uh, these two convicts in prison, and uh, at one point in the story, there's a man named Brooks Halton who's been in jail for his entire life. And towards the end of 
his, his stay in prison. He's about to be released. He's about to be free. But it's been like 30 years. And he is nervous about going back into the real world. And he begins to do really radical things, culminating in at one point, he takes another convict and holds a knife at his throat. And they have to intervene and stop him. And it's clear he, he's trying to say, I'm, you should keep me in jail. I don't want to leave. And as some of the prisoners are processing this, Morgan Freeman's character in his very lovely voice says, you know, these walls are funny. First, you hate them, then you get used to them. Enough time passes, you get so you depend on them. They send you here for life, and that's exactly what they take, the part that counts anyway. Paul is saying that we can be a little like Brooks Halton. We can decide that the old things were not so bad, masters after all. Maybe Christ tells us not to be anxious, but we've used anxiety our whole lives to take care of us, so why would I shift off from that now? Uh, my fear has protected me and kept me safe. My workaholism is why I am still here, these kinds of things. Uh, my reputation and having people like me is what has protected me. And so all these things, I'm going to cling to them. And it might be that we're afraid of what it looks like to be free in Christ. And we are cynical about our ability to change. But we have something different. We have the spirit of God that dwells within us. And you know, it's actually in community that the Spirit does the best work, which is why so much of the scriptures are about confess your sins to one another. Why isn't it enough to just cry, to pray to God? Why do I have to confess to, to someone else? Because the Spirit does its work in community. That person I'm confessing to also has the Spirit, sees things I don't see. When I confess my sin and I feel like it's hopeless and beyond anything, and that person says, oh man, there's so much hope for you, and your bravery for speaking was awesome, and I... That speaks to me. That's the spirit speaking to me, right? Uh, I know you guys are trying to get off the ground um, kind of uh, spiritual discipline groups, and that's the kind of place where the spirit does its work, right? So that's the first thing that Paul tells us, is that you have the spirit of God in you. You do not have a spirit of fear. You do not have to be cynical about being conquered by the old masters. We have a new master, who's the Father who loves us, the Spirit pushes us towards God, we have all that we need. So that is now true. That is true right now. Boom. But Paul's also honest. And he ends the passage in an interesting way, this little section of the passage. He says that the Spirit himself bears witness that we are children of God, and if children then heirs, provided we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. And it's this interesting thing he puts at the end. If you're led by the Spirit, if you follow the Spirit, you're probably going to suffer. I realize I talk about suffering a lot up here. I swear it's in the Bible all the time, so it's not just me. Um, so when you are led by the Spirit, it's actually led into difficulty, which is interesting. So let's look at, then Paul gets into, well, let me talk about what's not yet true. We've looked at what's already true, what is now true. Let's look at what's not yet true. He starts by talking about, creation. Uh, look with me in, uh, let's start in 18. First he says, okay, so I'm telling you you're going to suffer, but I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed to us. Whatever aches and pains and sufferings we have now, they, they're not even going to hold a candle to what's coming. For the creation, earth, everything that's physical, created, waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility 
non-productivity. Not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. We're probably more aware than any generation of um, environmental destruction that's gone on in our world. Though maybe I wonder if uh, in the beginning when they first started building the mills, there are some famous, I don't know if you've heard the phrase, if you're a Luddite, means you're against technology. My students call me a Luddite all the time. Uh, there was a guy named, uh, they called him King Ludd, and he got a group together and they traveled around burning down mills because they thought they dehumanized people. He ultimately lost that battle. Uh, but I think we have a sense, right, that industrialism uh, has done some things to the environment that makes us sad. But it's interesting to me that before industrialism, before all this, Paul still even looks around at the environment. He looks at creation and says, it's groaning. There's something wrong. And he can tell it even then. Creation is in a bondage of decay. And not just creation, not just the world we look around, but our bodies too, like ourselves. My mom has had a chronic illness for most of her life, and my brother's permanently handicapped by a, a freak stroke he had when he was 21. And these things weren't punishments for sins they committed or a result of bad living or anything like that. Creation's in a bondage of decay. Things aren't the way that they're supposed to be. Some of you know this more intimately than others. Someone once told my dad that my mom's illness was because her faith wasn't strong enough, and I'd like to suggest to that person that I don't think they read Romans 8. Sometimes the world is broken. So Paul says not only, though, is creation broken, not only is it in a bondage to decay, but for us, too. He says the whole creation has been groaning, and not only the creation in verse 23, but he says, but we also, we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit. So he's not talking about just in general life is hard. He's saying for Christians in particular, there's a type of groaning that happens. We groan inwardly as we await Adoption as sons, the redemptions of our bodies. Uh, first thing, a few things to say about this. I've said this before, but I'm, it's worth repeating every time it shows up. This phrase, sons, what Paul is looking at in his Roman culture that he's observing, they had a practice where if, if you did not have a, a child, you could adopt like an adult and say, you are the new heir to my family. And you would become the full heir. It would be as if you were, you know, you're adopted, you're a son. And so Paul observes this process and says, that's the gospel. That's totally what happens for us. We are not sons. And then God says, here. So when it says adopted as sons, it does not mean some kind of sexist slam on women. It's actually a radical thing he's saying here because he's saying to men and women, you can be adopted as full heirs. You can participate as full heirs. And the Roman culture that he's observing, only young men would have been chosen for this right of adoption. But Paul is saying that in Christ, all of us can be adopted as, as sons. Do you understand? What, does, does that make sense? Do you see what I'm saying? So when he's saying that, uh, I imagine there would be some kind of thrill, like, whoa, we all have this ability to be adopted as sons. It's a big move. But there's this second thing, this groaning that we do uh, as believers. It's a groaning unique to Christians. And I suspect it's a groaning that comes about because of our faith. Uh, there are some of you who have been single far longer than you anticipated. And you hear comments from family and relatives like, no man yet, no woman yet. You hate picking out Christmas cards. 
because it just reminds people that you're alone and you frequently feel like life is just waiting. A single friend of mine recently said, you can be invited into other people's lives, but you feel it's harder to invite people into your life as the years pass. And you know, somewhere, I'm sure it is tempting for a lot of people to say, well, if I could just let go of my Christianity and cut some corners, then I wouldn't have to be alone. But this person commits to Christ. They don't cut the corners. And there's a groaning, right? There's a groaning. Some of you have children who've rejected God and gone on to do their own thing. And sometimes they've been successful. Sometimes they haven't. But you feel the weight inside that your, your son or your daughter hasn't, hasn't turned to God and you groan. Some of you have struggled with addictions and desires. And you see neighbors who can indulge in these things without worrying about a church community that might call them out on their sin or a God who's waiting at the end of the road. And it can be tempting to say, like, mm, this is not worth it. But you quit looking at your neighbors. You look to Christ. You don't give up the fight. And as a result, you groan. Some of you have made bad relational decisions that will follow you the rest of your life, no matter what comes next. No matter how much you change or grow, you can never undo what's been done, and you groan. As much as there is victory in Christ, as much as by the Spirit we put to death the deeds of the body, there's a not-yetness to the world. There's this groaning. Christ has won the victory on the cross, but the full ramifications haven't fully been sprung yet. But did you notice something about this groaning? It's not the groaning of somebody dying. It's the groaning of childbirth. It's a hopeful groaning. It's the groans before new life. When I tried to describe, um, in a way that won't gross out my students, uh, what childbirth is like, <laughs> from my perspective. So we, we have, uh, we've had uh, two of our children in the, <laughs> like that transition there, Mark. He's, he's trying to give a look, but he can't turn. Um, <laughs> I'm sorry, that was mean. Uh, all right. Um, We've had, uh, so we have our fourth child is coming December 23rd, somewhere around there, and we've had two of our children in our apartment that's connected to the, the student's dorm. We're upstairs, so they, ha they can't hear us or anything, but sometimes that freaks them out a little bit. Um, we have midwives and stuff, and it's, it's fine, so don't panic. Uh, but when I'm trying to describe to the students what it's like, I'm like, well, probably the cleanest example I can give you is, you know, like when you're at Disney World, and you're standing in line at Space Mountain, and there are people crying, and you have to go to the bathroom, and you wait like a full hour, and it's like, why would anyone subject themselves to this line, right? And then you get on the roller coaster, and it's like one minute, and you get off, and you're like, yes! And it totally validates it, and you're like, that was the best ride ever. Having a child is like that, right? Uh, I remember when Murray was born, uh, my family's downstairs, and if I get anything wrong, Jessica's gonna come up and say something. Um, when Murray was born, I remember at some point she was, she was really in it and just being like, this kid better be cute, you know? <laughs> like, he better be good looking to justify all this. And sure enough, when he comes out, it is, it's like all the, and Jessica has said this. I've asked her, like, what do you remember? She's like, I really, mo it was painful, but I mostly remember Murray. Uh, it just, like, all the stuff before just suddenly validated. Like, oh, yeah, wow, you know? And Paul is saying, that's what this groaning is like, is that, when Christ is revealed, it'll be like, phew, all that stuff won't even matter. What's interesting is how relational even childbirth is. Um, 
Jessica is in the, in the throes of giving birth, I would notice she'll, she'll speak to our child and be like, come out, it's safe, come out. And it's, it's relational for her. At the end of it is a person, you know? And that's, that's the way it is for us. At the end of our groans, it's not meaningless or hopeless. At the end of our groans is Christ, the one who loves us. Our suffering isn't meaningless or hopeless. It's relational. It points towards Christ. So I, last thing I'd, I'd want to say about this. Uh, there's one other person who groans in this passage, and that's actually the Spirit. It says the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses. Wait, this Spirit that's supposed to put to death the deeds of the body that's super powerful, all this? Yes, it groans with our weaknesses. For we don't know what to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes us with groanings too deep for words. We don't even know what to ask for, but the Spirit does. The Spirit's goal is to bring us to God. And as we pray, the Spirit groans too. And God hears it. There are still weaknesses. We don't know what to pray for, but the Spirit prays for us. He knows what we need. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. In the first advent, God's people looked forward to the Messiah coming. For us, we remember what that's like, but we look forward to the second coming. We look forward to the groans ending. We look forward to the, that birth of the new earth, the kingdom of God, fully realized. So what is the Christian self-help book? What's the answer to self-help world? Well, there are a lot of people, I think, looking for answers to the fundamental questions. And I think uh, as Christians, the answer is we live in a now but not yet world. A lot of us have successes. A lot of us have weaknesses. We fight. We put to death the deeds of the body. We learn we don't have a spirit of fear, but we have a spirit of adoption. We're gods, but we also groan. We lose sometimes. We make choices that lead to suffering. But we know that that groan is the groan's childbirth. It's a hopeful groan that points to the king who's coming. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your goodness. Thank you that when we groan, it is not meaningless. It is a groan leading to new life, to new creation, to hope in you. I thank you that you are good, that you love us. I thank you that the gospel is good, that when we get up to speak about it, we get to speak about good things. Thank you that you loved us even when you didn't have to. Thank you that you adopted us when you didn't have to. Father, may the next few weeks be weeks where we live in that tension. For those who are routinely cynical and hopeless, Father, reveal to them the spirit of adoption as sons. Give them courage to put to death the deeds of the body, to pursue you, to do it in community. For those who are frequently afraid to acknowledge weaknesses, Father, help them to see that the spirit prays for us in our weaknesses. Help them to turn and face them with the courage of knowing that you are with them. Thank you for your goodness to us, and in Jesus' name.